0: I remember prepping him for interviews at the end of the administration, saying, they're going to ask you what your legacy is going to be. And he said, look, I read three books about George Washington last year. And if historians are still analyzing the first president, then the 43rd doesn't have a lot to worry about because he'll never know.
1: Hey, hey, and welcome. This is the Ben Shapiro Show Sunday special, and I'm really excited to be joined today by Dana Perino. She's host of The Daily Briefing and co-host of The Five. Dana, great to see you.
0: It's amazing to finally get to do the Sunday show.
1: I know. The best well, Sunday
0: show. Oh, thank no you. No offense to Chris Wallace.
1: <laughs> well, for people who don't know your background and have only seen you on Fox News, you first rose to prominence as President Bush's press secretary. Mm-hmm. But what was, how
0: did you get into politics before, like before that? Before that? It's funny, I um, I worked uh, on Carl Rove's book uh, and a couple of others, and I remember um, he Carl wanted to write just from when he was the president's uh, campaign manager in 1998. And I remember the editor saying, you can't just show up as the, the president's campaign manager. You have to understand how. And those were always the, kind of the hardest first uh, chapters for people to write. Charles Krauthammer was the same when I worked with him. Peggy Noonan didn't even want to do it. But uh, I do think it's really important. And it's one of the things I love about your show is to like dig a little deeper. Like, how did you get to be this person? And well, my family's from Wyoming. Um, both of my uh, great grandparents on my maternal and my paternal side uh, homesteaded in Wyoming. Um, one became more of a entrepreneur like with a motel that there's i-80 goes right through Mm -hmm. wyoming big trucking route and so they had a motel there and a couple of other things but i feel like maybe where i identify the most is with my great-grandparents ranch in wyoming um so it was the late 1800s they came from italy my great-grandfather was a coal miner uh he did that all the way up to the 60s he did die of black lung he and my great-grandmother had um eight children, seven survived. One of them was was my grandfather and is in the Black Hills of Wyoming. A lot of people think because I work for the president, I'm either from Texas and I knew the Bushes or that when I say I'm from Wyoming, there's sort of this, oh, then you must know the Cheneys. Like, I didn't know the Cheneys either. Um, The Cheneys were from the other side of the state. The Black Hills is about 80 miles west of uh, Mount Rushmore. Well, the ranches, right by Devil's Tower. So it's a pretty rugged country, good cattle country. And my grandfather thought that he wanted to be a doctor. And so he was on that path. However, uh, World War II happened and he then went and fought in the Pacific and the Marines had him uh, train as a medic. But like with many of those veterans, they felt like they had seen the world at that point and they were done with it. And he was needed back on the ranch, he goes home. But before he went home, he comes down through the Panama Canal, up and the dock in Philly, that's when he's gonna decommission. Uh, the war was over. And a friend of his said, we wanna set you up on a blind date tonight. And my grandmother's friend said, we wanna set you on a blind date tonight. And both of them refused to go until the last minute. And it was love at first sight, and they um, got married and they had three children. So my dad was the oldest of three. Yeah, I think he knew early on that he didn't wanna be a long to- lifelong rancher. He was the first one to go to college. Uh, at University of Wyoming, one of the things about my dad that maybe helps explain me later is he loved news and he loved debate. And so he used to, this is before like speech teams existed, you know, he, at the University of Wyoming at least, he and his roommates um, would take a topic and they would debate it, take one side, take a break, and then have to argue the other side. So uh, he and my mom met at Casper College and I was the oldest of two When I was two and a half, my dad got a job with Western Farm Bureau Life Insurance Company. We moved to Denver. And my dad, when the third grade started this tradition where I had to read the Rocky Mountain News and the Denver Post before he got home from work, and I had to choose two articles to discuss before dinner. And I flash forward a little bit for, I know you have a daughter. Um, For anyone that has a daughter and there may be concern, like how do you raise a confident young person. um, and I'm not excluding boys. I just know my own experience. This is the early days of feminist marketing. There was this yellow t-shirt my dad bought me, and in all black capital letters it said, anything boys can do, girls can do better, which of course is not true. But (laughs) it's one of those things where my dad was always like, you can do whatever you want. But having that opportunity to express myself and defend my positions about why I chose this article, why do I think it's important, Gave me, I think, the confidence later on to do that with the president of the United States, and I really encourage that kind of interaction with young women at their at their earliest ages. If if um, anybody that's watching, if they can can do that. Um, one thing that people don't realize, I don't think, until the Kamala Harris Biden dust up at that first debate uh, this year, is that Denver was a city that was the subject of the busing desegregation uh, that lost in the Supreme Court. Uh, Denver then was the first to try to integrate schools using busing. And so when I was in the fourth grade, instead of going to the school that was three blocks away from my home, I got bused 20 miles into the city. I was one of only four white kids in the whole school. Um, I, I was talking to my mom about it, and she said, it's not that you didn't make friends, though I remember it kind of differently. She said that on the weekends or after school, there was no one to play with. She didn't know anybody, and then because I got bullied and all the rest, I would have this anxiety about, well, what if they get mad at me? Like, What if they don't like me tomorrow? And I would pray over and over again in this rote fashion, like, I hope they're not mad at me tomorrow. I hope they're not mad at me tomorrow. But, so my parents ended up, after two years of that, moving to a rural part of Colorado, and that's where we grew up. Went to University of Southern Colorado on a speech team scholarship. Um, went to graduate school, University of Illinois uh, Springfield, I was getting a degree. I was going to be a reporter. And I like covering politics. That was what I really wanted to do. But you can't always cover politics. The state legislature's not in session. you got to do other things. And one day, the station I worked for, a CBS affiliate, said they wanted me to go cover this murder trial. This young boy, two years old, had been murdered by this woman's best friend who she'd been living with. And the trial was starting. And they said, go and get an uh, interview with this woman. And I went to the courthouse. And I circled her three times, and I said, "Oh, I can't do this." And I went home, and I told my dad, "I said I think I just got a graduate degree in something I don't want to do." And he was great. He said, "Um, "As soon as you graduate, then we'll just you come home. You'll figure it out." Ended up going to Washington and worked as a House press secretary for a congressman from Colorado. He was chairman of the Energy and Power Subcommittee, which is how i kind of a nerd on climate change issues, environmental issues. I know them very well. That's actually how I get back to the White House after 9-11. Um, my girlfriend called and said, could you come join us at the Justice Department? And then from there, I became press secretary.
1: So in a second, I want to ask you about working in the Bush administration, what that was like. And I'm going to ask you about President Bush and being mm-hmm. press secretary. But first, let's talk about life insurance. Now, there are a lot of folks who Think about getting life insurance like ah why bother you know is that really such a big deal the answer is yes it's a giant deal you should have life insurance if you're an adult you got to make sure that your family is taken care of so don't be chicken about going to get life insurance especially when it's easy. If you got a family, you might be dealing with something a little scarier right now than searching for life insurance, not having life insurance. So go shop for life insurance. If the idea of looking for life insurance, though, does intimidate you, there's an easy solution. PolicyGenius.com. PolicyGenius is the easy way to shop for life insurance online. In just minutes, you can compare quotes from top insurers and find your best price. And PolicyGenius doesn't just make life insurance easy. They can also help you find the right home insurance and auto insurance and disability insurance. Policy Genius will give you the peace of mind that you require when you go out into the world. Because, you know, God forbid you get hit by a bus. At least your family is taken care of. This October, take the scariness out of buying life insurance with Policy Genius. Go to policygenius.com, get quotes, apply in minutes. You can do the whole thing on your phone right now. Policy Genius, the easy way to compare and buy life insurance. Okay, so let's talk about your time in the Bush administration. So when did you actually first get to know President Bush? So you joined the administration mm-hmm. in, in the DOJ, but that doesn't necessarily mean you know the president. So no. how did you actually get to know the president?
0: Well, I started um, trying to think of when I first, I, he might have known about me. Um, I had worked with Ari Fleischer on Capitol Hill. Um, Josh Bolton was a big fan of mine. So it was Andy Card because I had been doing the White House Council on environmental quality press for the White House for a long time now. You know, media bias is not new. Okay, And being hard on Republicans on environmental and, and conservation issues is not new. We were on the front page every single day. In fact, I'll tell you something that a lot of people don't know. On September 10th, 2001, what was the White House Communications Office working on? Stayed till 10 p.m. at the White House. Big issue. Front page New York Times story coming the next day. They got a problem on their hands. It was the Cheney Energy Task Force, right? The next morning, the world changes forever. And you look back on that now, and like, oh my gosh, we should have just said, yeah, of course, Cheney's chairing the Energy Task Force, you idiots, of course. But it's just a different time. Um, but I did all the stuff on Bureau of Land Management, uh, all the climate change issues. There was a issue about coal-fired power plants called New Source Review that the Clinton administration had been very clever in filing these little lawsuits, little time bombs that would pop up and then the administration and the next administration would have to decide, are you going to pursue this ridiculous lawsuit against these coal-fired power plants? And if you're not, does that mean you're a dirty polluter? So we dealt with a lot of that. Um, but I started in the White House Press Office as the deputy on the first day of the second term, and got to know me then. It's so actually kind of funny story. I feel like the first time he ever really knew who I was, I got kicked out of the Oval Office. This is one of my most embarrassing moments. But Dan Bartlow's communications director, he said, "Dana, would you mind sitting in with the president as he does this um, interview with David Ignatius? David Ignatius has just returned from Iran. President's agreed to sit down with him." And you know, they're going to have this conversation. And I'll come for the pre-brief for the president, but I have to go to this other meeting. Can you just sit? And I'm like, yeah, I, I know how to do that. But I was pretty nervous. My first time sitting with the president, Oval Office, syndicated columnist. So we get to the Oval Office. Dan's starting to explain this, what's happening. He said, Mr. President, David Ignatius is here. He's and the president says, oh, I'm not doing an interview with Ignatius. And Dan said, no. You are, remember, we talked, he said, no. I said, I would talk to David Ignatius about his trip, but I'm not going to do an interview with David Ignatius because then he'll write about it, and then it will look like I'm negotiating with the Iranians through David Ignatius, and I'm not doing it. And therefore, she doesn't need to be here. And he looked at me, I don't even think he knew my name, and he gave me one of these head nods (laughs) to basically, like, get out of the Oval Office, so I leave by the grandfather clock, and I, I think my office was like 30 steps away. Go down to the lower press office, I had a pocket door, I closed it, and I called Peter, my husband, and said, uh, I was tearful, I wasn't crying, but I was tearful, and he said, what happened? Tell the story. And he said, well, just think, for the rest of your life, you can say I've been kicked out of better places than this. <laughs> <laughs> but then over time, the president got to know me. One of the things I think was a, one of my, my highest compliments I got from him is that he was never surprised by a question from the press when I briefed him, That was like super covered. I, I have all the bases covered.
1: What was his relationship with the press like? Because obviously, you know, now we have short memories, and everybody pretends that, as you say, the fake news began with President Trump, and that mm. no president has ever been hit <laughs> by the press like like President Trump. Some of us are old enough to remember when George W. Bush was president, and they were calling him Bush Hitler and suggesting that he was a war criminal. So, what? How did you handle press relations?
0: Well, yeah, you kind of do have to go back in time a little bit. Remember, he had watched um, his father go through media bias. Remember um, the wimp, the wimp factor? Uh, that was in the front cover of Newsweek, I believe. Um, president Bush kind of never got over that for his, on his dad's behalf. Like if you insulted, 41 and 43, as we'll call them, both said it was harder to be the father of a president and the son of a president than it was to be the president because of the criticism. When, it's, when the criticism is aimed at you you can kind of handle it, but if it's about your loved one, it's different. Um, by the time I come on the scene, he's seen his dad go through it. He's been elected governor of Texas twice. He's gone through the recount. He's um, in war uh, and he's been reelected. And he had a respect for the First Amendment, and he also was his father's son, and so there was respect was to be given to the press, Um, and also the president gave me a real leg up, he told everybody in the administration, if you are at a meeting and you go back to your desk and you have a message that Dana Perino called, she's the first person you call back. Because I would say, unlike today, it's just different now, but I would spend 85% of my day preparing for the press briefing, and part of that was being in meetings, listening, um, helping shape the message and all of those things, but it was really press relations. I do remember Ed Gillespie, however, the communications director at the time, strategic advisor for the president, started a thing called um, Setting the Record Straight. And it was a document that we used to put out. We would take an article, and now it's just it's like common, this happens on Twitter all the time, or it happened to the, well, you think, of the, but with the New York Times and Kavanaugh, that happened immediately. We would try to do that from the White House or from the RNC, they would, they would give that a shot. Um, I have this one young man, Carlton Carroll. I remember we used to have to announce over the intercom that we had put a press release in the bins Of people at the White House. And Carlton Carroll over the intercom said, there's a setting the record straight in the bins, and I suggest you read it. That was kind of our pushback. Um, Bill O'Reilly used to give me a little bit of a hard time in commercial breaks saying that I was too easy on the press. And looking back, I think maybe that's true. Maybe that's true. But I also had good relations where, especially with the White House press corps, I don't think I would change how I handled it because I used to think if I'm speaking in front of at the podium and if the pre, if the president were watching me I would think if would he be proud of what I was saying and if the answer was no I didn't say it
1: so how has the job of press secretary changed? Because now we've seen, obviously, that that position elevated to such an important point in American life that mm-hmm. people aren't allowed to appear on Dancing with the Stars if they, uh, <laughs> if they apparently dissembled from the. Honestly, from the
0: roasting you at the Commentary magazine on the same night that Sean Spicer. Uh, Did Dancing with the Stars. I think I was probably even more nervous than Sean Spicer was um, because he he has a, he loves life and he. I mean,
1: you you weren't wearing like a a green.
0: No, I knew that I was the only female roaster. So I was like, I'm wearing the white dress to to be a little different. Um, I think technology has changed a lot of things. Um, Marlon Fitzwater is one of my favorite people. He was press secretary to Reagan and Bush. Imagine being press secretary for eight years. Um, His book called The Briefing is probably one of the best ever written about Washington experiences, and I recommend it highly to anybody who's thinking about uh, going to Washington. Well, fast forward from Marlon Fitzwater to Mike McCurry. Now, he's President Clinton's press secretary. He's the first to allow cameras into the briefing room. That changes the dynamic a lot. He says he regrets it. I think it was kind of inevitable. People want the video. In January of 2009, on the day that I leave the White House, I didn't even have a Twitter account. And the Obama team really takes social media to the next level to win the election. They use it a little bit differently. But I do think that sort this is my own perspective. I've done, I've done no research on this, but it's my gut that just as radio changed things for FGR and, and, and forever. And at the time, people are like, what is he doing? This is so inappropriate. He's on the radio. And then you get to Kennedy all the way through Reagan and the use of television. And that changes everything. And I do think that whether you like the tweets or you don't like the tweets, the fact that the president of the United States communicates directly, not through the media, that has changed things. I don't think it's for the better or the worse. I think it's fascinating. And I still think there is a role for the press. It's interesting. Conservatives tend to hate the press. Until the press writes a good article, then it's like, well, look what the New York Times. (laughs) Even the New York Times wrote that. I had a rule in my office, always read the article twice before you complain about it. And that helps soften things.
1: So your relationship with President Bush was obviously very close. And that meant that when you were press secretary, your message was much more on message with, with President Bush's. Mm. How would you answer questions where you didn't quite know what the president thought? Because that that obviously, the, the gap between the president and the press secretary has been very obvious in this administration, where the press secretary will go out there at least early on, say something, the president will then undercut that, or the press secretary in fear that they might cross the president will give some bizarre answer on mm. something that might normally seem sort of obvious to, to everybody.
0: This is a great question. I have a great story about our connection um, one of the things is uh, Dee Dee Myers was given bad information, actually given bad information from the National Security Council about a strike. Was it, I think it was in Afghanistan, actually. And she had been at the White House on a Saturday. Reporters asked her, like, hey, we're hearing about activity. She goes and she asks the National Security Council. They say, no, it's not happening. She tells that to the press because they were afraid they didn't want to upset the operation. But that hurt her incredibly fast forward, you know, Scott McClellan gets into this thing. It's like, well, I, he, whatever he said he heard, it didn't, that was, so I'm, I was hyper aware. One, I never, ever, ever want to get in trouble for anything. I like the gold star on the chart at the end <laughs> of the day. So I would be super cautious about things like that. The other thing is, and I think Obama and and Trump are like this as well. President Bush let me be with him anytime I wanted. So I would listen uh, uh, to all of, all of the things that he would say. Um, I didn't always raise my hand. I could raise my hand if I wanted to, but I could observe everything. So the story I was going to say about this is um, the only time I didn't double check to make sure was really high stakes. I woke up one morning, four o'clock in the morning, I used to get four 4.12. I would wake up. My alarm was at 4.20, but I woke up at 4.12. Uh, and there's all these emails that say from reporters, they want to know what the president thinks about Prime Minister Maliki of Iraq sending troops into Basra. And I'm like, let me you know, I'm just still drying my hair, guys. I'll get back to you as soon as I can." Then they're all. Email. And I don't know what came over me, except for that I had been with the president so much. I'd been in all the secure video teleconferences with Maliki and um, Karzai. And finally, I say, about 5:45 in the morning, I think I gave it to Reuters, I said, "The president of the United States supports Prime Minister Maliki, and reminds everyone that this is exactly what the world was thinking Maliki wouldn't do. But he did it to help protect the uh, minority there in Iraq, in Basra, because Basra was a mess. About five minutes later, all these articles start coming in from the wire services. Petraeus is furious with Maliki. Gates is furious. Rice is furious. Nobody knew that this was happening. They're so mad at Maliki. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I could get fired today. I really did think that. I, my stomach sank. I was so nervous. Get to the White House. Senior staff meeting's late. Bush White House was never late. Josh Bolton comes into the Roosevelt Room from the Oval Office side, not his office. And he's standing there, instead of sitting down, and he said, I've met. I just came from the Oval Office. I'm gonna tell everybody in this room that if anyone here says that the president doesn't support Prime Minister Maliki, they are wrong. And I had the little piece of paper. I was like, I said it, I said it, he's on record. I have it, Like it's like it's there in 2009 2000 late 2008 2009 we did interviews with charles krauthammer four of them that charles decided never to publish that was you know it was up to him and charles says to the president when did you know that the surge was going to be a success the president says well basra and when maliki sent the troops in and nobody thought he would do it and he says you know charles nobody in my administration was with me except for dana and that he remembered Meant a lot to me, so we were. I just I tell that story to say like we were super close. I understood him, he understood me, and we have, you know, in a lot of ways he was like a second father to me. But you know, if the if he as commander in chief had asked me to mop the floors for eight years, I would have done it.
1: So in a second, I want to ask you about what the press always gets wrong about George W. Bush. We'll get to that in one second. First, who really wants to go to the post office? I mean, the post office is great. I mean, they provide great services, but do you really want to schlep? all your stuff to the post office in the back of your car and unload it all and then you have to wait in line. Here's what you need. A way to get all the services of the post office without actually going to the post office. You need stamps.com. It's one of the most popular time-saving tools for small businesses. Stamps.com will eliminate trips to the post office and save you time and money with discounts that you can't even get at the post office. Stamps.com brings all the amazing services of the U.S. Postal Office directly to your computer. Whether you're a small office sending invoices, or an online seller shipping out products, or even a warehouse sending thousands of packages a day, Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send it. Once your mail is ready, just hand it to your mail carrier or drop it off in a mailbox. It is indeed that simple. With Stamps.com, you get $0.05 off every first-class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail. Not to mention, it's a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters. Stamps.com, it's a no-brainer. It'll save you time. It'll save you money. It's no wonder over 700,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com. Right now, my listeners get a special offer. It includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale with no long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com, click on that microphone at the top of the homepage, type in Shapiro. That's Stamps.com. Enter Shapiro. OK, so let's talk about what the press gets wrong about George W. Bush. So, I mean, I was, you know, covering from afar what was happening with the Bush administration and the and the typical press sort of account of President Bush is that he was a bumbler and that he was a clod and that he and that he was indecisive. And that still kind of maintains to a certain extent in the press to be the narrative, although now they're redrawing it because they hate Trump so much that any Republican who came before is is by Proxy now, now normal and good, Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. what what was that like? I mean, you knew him personally, obviously. It was frustrating. It
0: was frustrating. I don't know if you've ever worked with somebody that um, that you know to have so much. You have so much respect for them, and you see them behind closed doors, um, and then in front of the camera, it just doesn't translate sometimes. And I think he tried really hard to connect with common man. Like if we went and did an interview. He loved the crew. He didn't care about the talent. He loved the crew, right? So like behind the scenes, people knew. So uh, we started doing these things, uh, these off-the-record meetings on foreign policy. We would invite uh, reporters in. The New York Times, I think, refused to come because it was off the record, but everybody else came. It was like, fine, well, if you don't want to get the president's thinking, whatever. Fine, we don't, don't come. And to a person, they would leave and say, wow, why isn't that the person that you see on TV? And I'm like, you know, A president has multiple audiences that uh, they're talking to all at the same time. The American people, our troops, our allies, and our enemies. Um, And you have to keep all of those things in mind. And I think, I don't know if they realized how funny he was. And 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 also, here's another thing that really bothers me. This is how I had a reporter who wrote a book about working in Washington. Women in, working in Washington. And she called me and she says, So, how hard was it to be in the Bush bro White House? I said, what are you talking about? I was the press secretary. If I needed something on foreign policy, I called Condi Rice. It was Homeland Security, I called Fran Townsend. Got an education question, I'm going to call Margaret Spellings. You know, uh, counsel's office, Harriet Myers, Ledge Affairs, that was Candy Wolf. I, mean, I, I could go on, but I think I've made my point here. To the, and it's very frustrating that like he, he was a promoter of women, but we didn't promote it in terms of, we didn't put out a press release every time a woman achieved a new position just because it was on the merits. That's how it was just a meritorious uh, situation. Um, there were gay people that worked in the Bush administration. Now, a lot of people did come out uh, after the administration, but I also think you know when, when gay marriage uh, became accepted, and the Supreme Court ruled. You know, that changed so fast with society. Um, I feel like people think he was quite an intolerant person and, and he was not.
1: How did you handle leaks in the White House? So that's obviously been a huge issue with this with this administration. And there were some problems with leaks in the early Bush administration. By the second term, it seemed like that had been locked down pretty well.
0: I I can't even remember a leak that we had to deal with, actually. One time, I did think there was a leak, and then the president said, no, that was Hadley. (laughs) (laughs) That was, uh, because Steve Hadley had had given some information about it. Anyway, uh, no, we didn't really have leaks, though if there ever was a leak, I think it's so interesting. You can take it to the bank. The press office never leaks because they have to clean up the leaks, but they're always suspected of the leak. But I tell you, it's almost 100% foolproof that the first person to complain about a leak is the leaker.
1: Wow, the he who smelt the Delta theory of, Absolutely. <laughs> of leaky behind. I remember it
0: from the John Roberts nomination. Um, there was somebody in the counsel's office and something came was in the paper, like, How, that's not accurate, that's not true. Get this call at 6.40 in the morning from a guy I never even really talked to and I realized, like, oh, he's the leaker.
1: So let, let's fast forward from the Bush administration to now you're on Fox News. So yeah. what was that transition back into TV and, and news like for you? Because you started off there and you yeah. sort of ended up there. Although
0: but, what I was doing when I couldn't get the land the interview at the courthouse was very different from what I do now. Um, I knew when I left the Bush administration that I wanted to stay in the conversation. I also wanted to be somebody that could continue to defend and promote the legacy of George W. Bush. And I enjoyed explaining things to people. I, I, I enjoyed that. One of the things I made the mistake of doing, and a lot of people do this when they leave um, public service, is you say yes to everything. I was burning the candle at both ends. I was working later hours than I had when I had been at the White House. Um, so eventually, after just being a contributor for a while, being the guest, I, I almost always, for those first two years, was defending the Bush administration, because you remember President Obama, remember get a mop? He would say it over and over again. It was a constant, a gentle, respectful way of pushing back and setting the record straight. Uh, so I did that. And then I got nominated by McConnell. And then President Obama agreed. And I got Senate confirmed to the Broadcasting Board of Governors, which oversees Voice of America and the like. I do a lot of work, care a lot about Africa. It's kind of born and put into me uh, by the bushes. And I was coming back from Nigeria at Dulles Airport. And I got a call asking me if I could come up to New York for five weeks to do this temporary program with five people at a table. And that was eight years ago. So we moved up here and did that. But I think the hardest thing was, as press secretary, I, I was very used to explaining somebody else's decisions explaining their decision-making. I could ex- tell you exactly why he did it, what what his opinion was. I knew all of that. It wasn't until I came on the five that I was challenged to say, well, what do you think? And I realized that there's a big buffer in that because if I'm, di- if I'm your spokesperson, it's not me that they're criticizing, right? So that was new for me. I remember Greg Gutfeld at one point turned to me and he said, no, what do you think? Not what the administration thought like what do you think about I think it was the legalization of marijuana and I really had to spend some time thinking about it and thinking about how I would articulate it. I think that was the hardest part and then also for a while I don't know, maybe this is just true of every it might not be true of every network but for a while because the show was called temporary and everything is temporary right you can be fired at any time that that can happen I, I wasn't sure am, am I going to have to leave doing this commentary work and go back and being a spokesperson for somebody or doing PR work, et cetera. And when I finally realized, oh, I can let go, been, I I started having more fun.
1: So I want to go back for a second. You mentioned the legacy of George W. Bush. And President Bush has famously said that you know he he only thinks that his legacy is going to be written 100 years after his presidency, and then we'll really sort of know. Well, we're not 100 years out, but we are 11 years out from his presidency mm-hmm. or 10 years out from his presidency. What do you think that, that the Bush administration's legacy is and, and President Bush's legacy will be?
0: I, I really— have to hand it to him for having this viewpoint. I remember prepping him for interviews at the end of the administration saying, they're going to ask you, your legacy is going to be. And he said, look, I read three books about George Washington last year. And if historians are still analyzing the first president, then the 43rd doesn't have a lot to worry about because he'll never know. Abraham Lincoln went, you know, unfortunately murdered, dies thinking he's unpopular. Right. And, and so no, I don't think that they'll ever really know. I, I, I think that looking through the prism of today, you know, I'll even have people say to me, "Oh, you know, I really miss real Republicans." And I, I understand what they mean in terms of civility, like if that's if they're looking for civility. But I also believe, and I learned this from President Bush, democracy is self-healing, and we have the greatest country. We've been through so much. We we've been through a lot worse. Um, Forty-three used to talk to me about when he graduated from college how terrible the country was, t- actually fighting each other in the streets in the late '60s and we're a long way from that um i think that his work with veterans will continue obviously nine eleven is the turning point for so many things and for a presidency that was supposed to be about returning to domestic policy the tax cuts early on right improve education um, less government no foreign uh nation building all that all changes in a moment out of necessity. And I think that is something I think will, people will look back and say, he was able to focus the mind and through his strategy was to help other presidents for the future have tools in place to help protect the country from it ever happening again. I think that that will be the most important part of the legacy.
1: I'd be remiss if I didn't talk a little bit about the war in Iraq, because you mentioned it a little bit earlier. And it it is fascinating to see how so many people on the right have now run headlong from from the war in Iraq, suggesting that yeah. not only was it was it based on bad information, which is you know fairly fairly true, at least with mm-hmm. regards to the weapons of mass destruction, mm-hmm. but that it was immoral, or that or that it was fought for for nefarious reasons for oil or, for oil right. uh, and and i mean i'm talking about leaders in the republican party suggesting this that the bush era foreign policy was truly a liberal foreign policy i've heard folks on on various networks suggest mm-hmm. uh, and w- w- what do you make of that sort of recasting of of the iraq war as something that i mean i'm old enough to remember when republicans spent eight years defending it so yeah. w- what do you make of that
0: So I really like Decision Points, President Bush's autobiography. Um, He takes 14 decisions of his presidency and explains them. And what I also like about it is he said, I'm done debating it, right? So I'm going to tell you what I knew at the time. You You can't force people to have a legacy based on information they didn't have at the time. And I still maintain that the world is better off without Saddam Hussein. And I hurt for our veterans that have come back and have injury um, and for the ones who didn't come back for the gold star families. I, I do think that um, defending what they did, why they went, how many, how many young people volunteered? It's, it's an incredible number because they believed in freedom. That was the other thing was that this innate belief in freedom, that was a rallying cry. And now it seems quaint. And to me, I I look at all around the world, like solving problems at their source will help a lot of things, would help a lot of things. Our immigration problem at the border, for example, law and order, things like that. Um, I also feel like the national security reasons for why you go to war, was there a threat? Was there a credible threat? One thing I admire about President Bush as well is that he never blamed the intelligence agency, he never did that because he knew as president he needed them, right? And that they had it wrong. Uh, Things can go wrong. And I think that he, as he writes in his book, if he had other information at the time, would he have gone to war? No, that's not the information that he had.
1: So let's fast forward to today's politics and talk about what's going on now. So obviously things are incredibly different than they were in two thousand eight. Even in two thousand and four, and we are living in this bizarre world in which, in which President Trump is the president, and that is a shocking development for people who are traditional followers of politics, because obviously he came from literally nowhere in the political mm-hmm. landscape, and
0: like and just steamrolled over all the other primary. Everybody.
1: Candidates. So, yeah. so first, I want to get your sort of analysis of what the hell happened in twenty sixteen, because we have a bunch of competing sort of narratives about what happened in 2016. On the right, you have this narrative that President Trump put together this brand new coalition that had never been done before, driving people out to vote like Mm -hmm. no one in history. And on the left, you have this idea that President Trump stole the election and that truly Hillary Clinton (laughs) was just sort of a failure at recreating the coalition of Barack Obama, but that the new normal is Obama's coalition and Trump is an outlier. How do you analyze
0: that Well, I'm definitely with the former. I think the latter is really dangerous for, if Democrats think that, they're gonna lose again. I'm also troubled by this notion that you have actual Democrats and many women Democrats saying a woman can't can't put a woman up in 2020 because a woman just can't beat President Trump because a, America's not ready to vote for a woman. And it, Wait, Hillary actually won the popular vote, right? She screwed up her strategy in three states. And so I, I feel like the, all this women's empowerment uh, nonsense that you hear from Democrats basically saying, "Oh, we actually we can't beat him." Okay, I actually think that the popular vote might not be achievable for for President Trump, though he's given it a shot. Going to New Mexico, going to California, if you can increase those vote totals there, even if he doesn't win those states, not saying he'll, New Mexico might be in the cards. California obviously is not, but if you can increase the number of people that vote for you um, and improve on the popular vote, that would be that would be something. I also think that Americans were much more ready for change than traditional uh, politicians or political observers thought. They were much more comfortable with it. They had had it. I'm very interested in the voters that voted for um, uh, well Obama and then Trump. I don't feel like the Democrats have done anything to win back those votes. I haven't. I feel like their economic arguments are pretty poor. And I remember Mitch McConnell um, saying on air uh, at the the, first State of the Union after Trump wins, after that first year of his presidency, like, Dana, look at this list. Look at all these things. And in any Republican administration, if you didn't know who the president was, would, 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 would Republicans be pleased? And the answer is arguably yes. From judges and policy, deregulation, all of these things have made sense. I also think that Republicans are quite lucky that President Trump decided to go with them. Right. Because had he thought that there was an opportunity and the timing was right, he could have steamrolled over the, de- the Democratic Party as well. And well, now he's doing that. <laughs> 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 he did have it with the Republicans and now he's doing it with them. Um, I, I did recognize about two years ago, I said, they're going to come after the Electoral College. This is going to be the new thing. Even though Obama won the Electoral College, they never talked about it again. But now they try to say that it's racist, um, that it's unfair. And I, I said on Tucker Carlson's show, I'm like, watch, they're going to come for the electoral college. It won't happen in our lifetime, but it is under threat.
1: So in a second, I want to ask you about sort of my theory that that Trump is reaction to not only the Obama years, but in part to the Bush years in, Mm -hmm. in in an interesting way. But first. Big tech, a lot of big tech, it ain't friendly to conservatives. There are a bunch of companies out there who just don't like conservatives very much. I mean, take a look at Twitter and what they choose to trend and how they choose to describe it. It's just terrible. Well, if you can't trust certain elements in Silicon Valley to treat conservatives fairly, how can you trust them to handle your privacy and personal online data? That's why I recommend using ExpressVPN every single time you go online. Big tech companies can use your IP address to match your internet activity to your identity or location. When I use ExpressVPN, search engines and media sites can't see my IP address at all. My identity is masked and anonymized. ExpressVPN has the added benefit of encrypting 100% of your data to keep you safe from people who you don't want to have your data. ExpressVPN software takes just a minute to set up on your computer or phone. You tap one button and you are now protected. So if you're like me and you believe that your internet data belongs to you, not to giant tech companies who may not be friendly to your values, ExpressVPN is is the answer. Protect your online activity today with the VPN I trust to keep my data safe. Visit expressvpn.com Ben to claim an exclusive offer for my fans. That's e-x-p-r-e-s-s vpn.com Ben for three months free with a one-year package. Again, that's visit expressvpn.com Ben to get started. Visit expressvpn.com Ben right now. Get that three months free with a one-year package and protect all of your information, no reason for everybody else to monetize your data when you should be in control of that data. ExpressVPN.com/slash Ben. I want to throw out a theory about what drove Trump directly over everybody in the Republican Party, including President Bush's brother, right? Mm-hmm. And, and just steamrolled everybody. And that is there was this roiling anger inside the Republican Party dating all the way back to the Bush administration, in which Republicans, I think to a certain extent, rightly felt that Republicans had not defended themselves against the predations of the press. President Trump has spent an enormous amount of time bashing the press. It's one of the things that, for all of my quibbles with the way that he acts, with uh, for all of my serious mm-hmm. criticisms of his character, mm-hmm. and even for my criticisms of, of his overuse of the term fake news, when he's a hammer in search of a nail, and there are a lot of nails for him to hit, and... For Republicans, it felt a lot during the Bush administration, like, why won't President Bush just come out and defend himself? We're out here fighting for him. Mm -hmm. Why won't he defend himself? It was really frustrating. And then in 2008, John McCain had somewhat of the same thing going on, where it was he was being savaged in the press as a racist and as a bigot and as... And then he was suge- it was suggested that he was Bush term three, even though he had right. significant differences with President Bush. And then he was in the background saying, well, I'm never, ever going to mention Jeremiah Wright. And Republicans were like, what the? Why? Why would you not? And, and then in 2012, it was Mitt Romney, the most genteel toast human being ever to walk the planet running. And his entire campaign was basically, Barack Obama's a really good dude, but marginal tax rates are out of control. And so right. along comes Trump in 2016, and he's a giant pulsating middle finger, And a lot of Republicans just say, okay, that guy, because we're sick of this. What what do you make of that theory?
0: I think that's right. I also feel like, but also back in time, if you go like after 9-11 and the country's at war, um, one of the worst things is uh, inauthentic behavior. Um, It wasn't in President Bush's nature. Although when Kanye West suggested that he was a racist um, after Hurricane Katrina, he says that was the thing that hurt him the most when he was president. As a leader, you know he he was a turn the other cheek kind of guy. Focus on the goal, and I'm like that too. And 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 I I think I just have to be who I am. But sometimes that doesn't work so well on cable news. <laughs>
1: I'm
0: not a fighter, really. I'm, I will argue my point, but I also have a longer term view of life and a legacy. And I think that he probably did too. I imagine when I say that I thought about. What he would be thinking of me, I imagine he thought, what would my parents be thinking of me? Right? And that he, and he has a deep faith and a relationship with God, and, and he was going to live that faith. So fast forward, when people are thinking that their uh, culture, their very way of life, their very being is under assault, and then here comes somebody who is willing to stick up for you, there's power in that. And I he was very good friends. I am very good friends with Brett Kavanaugh. I worked with him uh, in the White House. I remember when I was spokesperson for Justice Roberts, then Judge Roberts, that, not, that confirmation wasn't easy. People think that it was easy. It was easy after Chief Redquist passed away because then there was another opening and it was fine. Then Alito became the target. But at the time, I remember I didn't understand. I'm not a lawyer. So I didn't understand why I was getting all these questions about the right to privacy. I was like, I thought this was supposed to be about Roe v. Wade. What are we doing? And I went to Brett Kavanaugh on a Friday night, 7 p.m. He's, of course, still there. Knock on the door. I'm like, could you help me? And and he does. Right? He helps walk me through it. Um, watching what Brett Kavanaugh went through when he was confirmed. Now, when I was his spokes- a spokesperson in 05, the big controversy about Brett Kavanaugh going into the circuit court was that he had written a torture memo or something, or he right. had said a torture. So that, But arguably, all of these accusations about his character in high school and college would have been brought up in 04, 05. Never, never heard a whisper of it. Nothing. And I was with my husband in Spain on our 20th anniversary on, when Kavanaugh did the second hearing, the second testimony. And I've never seen my husband outraged. And I cried the entire time and i really thought nothing will unite conservatives like this and when it's a choice between two people whoever the democrats come up with and president trump i think that the democrats are gonna have a really hard time
1: i mean so what what the hell happened to the democratic party because because something has gone deeply awry here
0: (laughs) well maybe it's that they're having their own moment right they're having Fast forward eight years from now, if we do this uh, interview again, we'll look back and go, oh, the Democrats were really mad because whatever it might be. I mean, I
1: understand why they're angry. I I, I do think that there was this sense inside the Democratic Party that they were never going to lose another election and that Barack Obama had forged a coalition that was unbreakable because it did not rely on traditional white voters uh, and that this was the growing demographic. So as long as that demographic kept growing, he was never going to lose again.
0: They had kind of a parallel situation. They didn't deal with Bernie Sanders early. They changed the rules to accommodate him. He has a following in the movie. He wasn't even a Democrat, and it just so happened that Trump ran the tables. Bernie ran into the Hillary Clinton bulwark, basically, and now they're all still paying for it. And they're they're just they're going through transitions. It's quite common for a, a party to if they get two terms at a White House, which is Almost always the case that that next eight years is pretty turbulent for whatever part. I don't know how the Democrats will end up. There's a lot of realignment going on. It's kind of fun to it's it's kind of fun to live through it now. I would say in 2015 and 2016, I don't know if I loved watching Republicans fight amongst themselves, um, but now I feel much more like an observer and it's pretty fun to watch. I kind (laughs) of hope there's a contested convention for the Democrats. That'd be fun. It hasn't happened. I asked Bray I said, what's it like to cover a contested convention? He said, I don't know. I've never done it. So it could be really great history making.
1: So who do you think emerges? And we're going to get in the political prognostication game here. And I've lost too much money betting on politics to actually do this much anymore. But I'm not accusing. you It's two. fake
0: money. It's it, like house money. It, it,
1: <laughs> but let's talk about the Democratic primary process. So right now you've got Joe Biden, who is well-liked by a lot of Republicans. Like I know a lot of Senator uh, Senator Cruz, who is yeah, really opposed to him, talks friendly. about Very friendly. A lot of Republicans are very friendly with Joe Biden. You know, obviously, I've spent my entire career commenting from the outside. So I know very few Democratic senators and a lot of Republicans and very few Democrats. Yeah. And so from the outside, It has always appeared to me that Joe Biden is a political manipulator, that he is fairly good at that, but that he is actually sort of just a genial kind of bumbly guy. Does he look
0: hungry for it? No. Um, It's sort of like, remember when you read in the New York Times that Barack Obama tells Joe, you don't have to do this. And it, it seems like that is kind of the slogan for the campaign. There's no real... You're know, like, this, where's the energy? And even in his crowds, it's like, mm, like he's, he's, the, he's the next thing. I do think there's a lot of similarities to the Romney uh, candidacy. Uh, thing is that the Democrats keep hoping that the, his opponents, that he's going to crater. And he's not. He stays atop the polls, So he won't crater until one of them decides to go after him. Right. Castro tried, failed. Think about Marco Rubio. Marco Rubio tries to go after Trump, fails. And I think Bernie is a kind of a non-entity. He has a core base of support. They'll always be with him, but it's not growing. not really shrinking. It's not growing. Kamala Harris, you know, when you're polling fifth in your home state, and Andrew Yang, who is authentic and likable, um, and does crowd surfing. Like It's just different. If you're fifth, you know, behind him, in your home state, you've got, you've got, you've got problems. Now, you know, changing strategies. I think that Elizabeth Warren is getting a lot of positive press right now. She has a lot of energy. When I talk about that energy, you saw the media talking about her four, four hours of taking selfies. It's called a photo line, Oof. but like selfies, whatever you want to call it. Um, there's energy in her speech. And now at her speeches, people are finishing her lines. Like they've gone back multiple times. They like her. So there is something there was Elizabeth Warren. But I would say this. She missed her moment. She should have ran in 2016. She should not have endorsed Hillary. Should have should have taken on Bernie. And she would have been the candidate against Trump. I don't know how that would have turned out.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think that that's, I, I feel the same way because I feel like, as you say, her press has been inerringly glowing. So, I mean, since the Pocahontas stuff, mm-hmm. she, she it's been just endless great press for her. And I think that now that Bernie is starting to drop in the polls, he's going to have to come after her with a hot poker. I mean, there's just, he really has no choice. Right. And when that happens, he's going to hit her for inauthenticity and he's going to be right because she is inauthentic. I mean, she, she's she been playing it. I'm the authentic progressive voice in the room. Mm-hmm. She is certainly not. I mean, if you go back and you read what she was writing in 2003, 2004, she was actually kind of interesting and heterodox. And now she's mm-hmm. cribbing off of Bernie's And then pretending that she came up with all these ideas herself. I mean, even Stephen Colbert exposed her on the middle class tax stuff. So I I think that that Biden is default candidate. And I do think that Biden's candidacy has a serious shot against Trump just because default Democrat could do fairly well against Trump because of his personal foibles, mm-hmm. meaning that running a dead person against, <laughs> against Trump mm-hmm. might a- not actually be the worst strategy. It, you, you don't necessarily need somebody who is transformational and, and feels I do think it's but.
0: going to be close no matter what. Although, also, think about this with the Democrats, and maybe this is true for Republicans as well. probably is. Um, the governors that used to be Seen as great uh, presidential candidates because they've been executives of a state, they they're not from Washington. But here's the thing: they're not on TV all the time. Nobody knows them. So you here you have Governor Hickenlooper uh, and Governor Bullock, two very accomplished people, can't get a foothold. And I think part of that is that there's just so much national attention now, rather than state-based.
1: Let's talk for a second about the transformation of the Republican Party. So you you mentioned all the the chaos inside their party in 2015-2016. Mm-hmm. So how do you think that the new Republican Party stacks up to sort of the Bush era Republican Party? What what's changed and what's the same?
0: Well, I think that um I think that a lot of the people who were Reaganites come through even to, to even to today. But one thing also you, I thought you were you would mention that Republicans were very frustrated with the Bush administration for spending.
1: I think that was the tea party, but it didn't seem to matter with Trump.
0: It right? doesn't now, right? So that is that's a quick change in right. 8 years, but Kristen Soltis-Anderson, has this, well, she's not the only one, but she told me about this chart where the majority of people are not fiscally conservative and socially liberal.
1: Right, no she's one not. is basically, yeah.
0: They're socially conservative and fiscally liberal. And that's where you have somebody like Elizabeth Warren saying, I will uh, increase the average social security check by $200 a month. Doesn't, nobody cares how she's going to pay for it. I actually think, like, on that, what would President Trump say? Right? Is all of a sudden, it's going to be like, well, we can't do that. because No, I think, like, up the ante. Like, just keep going. And the the consequences of this kind of spending and, and debt and deficit, it seems to me that we took a lot of grief for that in the Bush administration that you don't hear so much now. Maybe that's okay. Maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe you could get to higher growth. Maybe, you know, Deficits. So I, I, I don't know. It's it is kind of a partisan thing. thing uh, spending. Republicans care about it during the Obama years. Maybe not so much during the Trump years. Democrats railed about it in the Bush years. Or not. It's. It, I think the spending issue is is super important. I also think that there's some innovation that needs to be done. And I like states doing the experiments, especially when it comes to health care. If we could figure out a way to unleash the free market, to be able to allow competition in some way to help with health care, I do think that Americans would realize we don't have to go to a Medicare for all model that will break the country. Um, th- there's some rallying to be done, but the Republicans right now, y- you have to ask yourself, on the Trump campaign, what do you want to do in a second term? Can we answer that? Like, What do you want to do? Now, most people would say stave off the crazy, and that might be enough. And it, it really might be, it, it might be enough. But I also wonder, like, you know, what could I, the other thing is, and I always keep this in mind. Remember I said that President Bush ran to do these things. 9-11 happened, changes everything. I'm always, like, something could happen. I think for President Obama, it was when Ed Snowden released all of those documents. Changes everything. Reveals all the nation's secrets. Causes huge problems all around the world. Nothing has ever really been the same. Uh, for President Trump, hasn't happened yet. But the Iranians hitting a Saudi oil facility, it's a pretty big deal.
1: So let's talk about how you maintain being a happy, well-adjusted, nice person in this space, <laughs> because that is indeed a rarity. And th- there are nice people, but you are uh, I, have, I have yet to hear anyone say a bad word about you, which is an amazing thing. I haven't I mean, talked to
0: Greg Gutfeld. He might give you a few. He might give you a few. Um, no. Yeah, but
1: everybody has bad things to say about Greg, so that's, <laughs> a, that, that's different. Um, yeah, he's, um,
0: I really don't think that I would actually have the career I have now without Greg because he really gave me the confidence to come out of my shell. Um, I remember Brian Kilmeade one time filled in for Greg and he said, I had no idea you were funny. I was <laughs> like, well, we were at war. like, what was I supposed <laughs> to say? Um, I, I was raised Lutheran. Um, my, uh, of course, I like, you know, like on the gold star on the chart extended to Sunday school. Um, I have relied on my faith. Many times, and I'm grateful to have it. Um, it's, it's funny; like sometimes you forget that you need you can you can be a little bit lax in, in your relationship with God, and and um, then something will yank you back to reality. And you think you think you can try to fix it, and you realize, oh, no, actually, you need to turn it over. And the Serenity Prayer um, is really important to me. So, um, knowing what I can do, what I can't do, and the wisdom to know the difference as something that I think is important. I also think there's just, uh, maybe it's not a Wyoming thing, but I feel like this is where I got it. There is a dignity and self-control and in staying calm. And for example, at the podium, I never let anyone see me rattled. And President Bush used to say, you might think she's nice, but she's tougher than you realize. Um, and maybe a little bit that, of that too is that I hold a lot of it in, but I learned a lot from President Bush. I remember uh, towards the end, there was a interview with uh, these two great guys, Terry Hunt and Steve Holland, AP and Reuters. They were like frickin' frack. They came everywhere with us, and Holland is still there at, at the White House today. They came in and interviewed the president at the last moment, and they, the president said something about, oh yeah, Bill Clinton was here yesterday for lunch, and they're like, I'm like, we didn't know, and it's like we, he, said, he he didn't put out a press release every time, and they asked, "Are you friendly?" He's like, "Yeah, I said, we are." He said, "You know, I call him on the days when nobody else would." Remember when the Obama team went after him in South Carolina, suggesting that he was a racist? And he said, "I called him on that day, and I always remembered that. Like, oh, call your friends on their hardest day. You called me once um, on a hard day, and." I also remember this, Um, at the end of the administration, Peter and I were headed to Africa. Uh, We're gonna do a little vacation, but also volunteer at a PEPFAR site. And I leaned my head back against the chair and I said, nothing I do for the rest of my life will ever be this difficult or this important. And it really hasn't. And I'm so grateful to be an American, to have the opportunities that I've been given. I haven't had a lot of hardship. Um, I also can't stand, disruption, drama. Uh, I I hate it when others are mean. And maybe it has to do also if I go back to um, being bust. Uh, I think that had a real impact on me, like the worry that somebody wasn't gonna like me or seeing somebody else be hurt. And my parents were very helpful to refugees. So on the weekends through Lutheran Family Services, um, and Lutheran world relief, we would help resettle refugees from the former Soviet Union. And I think that gave me a real appreciation for being out of your comfort zone. Um, also, it's life's short. You, wanna, you don't wanna live mean. Sometimes I laugh in spite of myself about President Trump's nicknames. The only one I've really liked was Little Rocket Man.
1: For personal reasons I didn't, and personal bias reasons, Sloppy <laughs> Steve is my personal favorite. But <laughs> sloppy, uh, 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 actually, Sloppy uh,
0: Steve. That's pretty good. <laughs> that's pretty good. Um, I understand the power of it and the the marketing and, and the skill and the political acumen. The president's super smart about that, right? He, he has the strategy. I just know like, it, w- it would hurt me to see somebody made fun of. It's probably why I'll never run for office. No, probably. I'm never running for office. do ever, <laughs> ever.
1: Nobody. No wiggle room there. So <laughs> no, I'm not
0: going. I'm not going to do it.
1: So for for folks who don't know your husband, Peter is just a delight. So how, how did you get? How did you guys meet? Like I only met him recently. I've known you for a while, but yeah. I've I only met him. I'm recently. so glad you and got he,
0: to meet him because he's such a kick. Also because he listens to Ben Shapiro every day, <laughs> and um, he he does this long walk in the mornings with Jasper at the park, and and sometimes he comes back. and Say, did you hear what Ben? Said, of course I heard what Ben said because <laughs> I always I listen to. So I'm I'm glad that Peter and I have you to share uh, as in, in our fandom. Uh, we uh, have an 18 year age difference. Um, I was 25 when I met him on an airplane. We were seated next to each other that, by our seat assignments. He, we were going from Denver to Chicago, and then I was going on from Chicago to D.C. And it was really love at first sight. And I moved to England eight months later, lived there for a year with him. And then we came back to the States in 1998, 99. And then 9-11 happened and we came back. and. He has, one of the things in my book and the good news is that I talk about is my favorite piece of advice is that choosing to be loved is not a career limiting decision. I think a lot of people put off relationships or marriage or family because they think they want to achieve a certain level of professional success and then they'll find love and do all of those things. And I try to tell people, "It it doesn't have to work that way. I actually feel like I couldn't have done any of this without Peter.
1: And then of course, there's Jasper. So you've written full books about Jasper. <laughs> so what, what's the You're not a dog guy. My, my wife is trying to get me into it right now. i like, oh, really gonna, trying you're to get me. You're totally it. gonna cave. I, I am, uh, for security reasons too. Because I keep being told that if you, if you, that if you really want to be secure in your house, then you need to have a dog outside. So this is.
0: I maintain, I've always maintained this, when Elizabeth Smart was kidnapped. If they had had a dog, it never would have happened.
1: Yeah, I mean, I get this a lot. So my, my, mm-hmm. my kids are into it, my wife is into it. I have a feeling within oh good, two years a dog. I'll be, a, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I will be a dog acolyte in all of my prior anti-dog positions. Do you positions remember will the located. time
0: that you um, sent me, you, you were going to do an ad for some sort of dog thing and you said yeah. to me like, no, you should take this one. This is more for Dana.
1: That, that was exactly right. It is it is one of the more awkward ad reads in the history of the Ben, <laughs> ben Shapiro show. Because,
0: and that's saying something.
1: Oh yeah, no, there have been some real bad ones and that one definitely is, is like right up <laughs> I grew up with
0: dogs um, and especially on the ranch and the dog, my grandfather was such a good dog trainer. My uncles too, very, very good dog trainer. So I, I learned that um, I, I had a dog with Peter. We got him in uh, Scotland, a Hungarian Vishla uh, breed, short hair, sleek, they're sweet, smart. Um, Henry was with me from when I was 26 to when I was 40. And one of the things I love about dogs is that they don't care that in that time I became the White House press secretary and moved to New York and was on the five. Like they're just your constant, it really is, you know, man's best friend. The other thing is, uh, Greta Van Susteren called me the night Henry died about six months after we moved to New York, and she said, you'll have to get another one. So well, how can I do that? I live in New York, and there's no grass, and... Well, she was right, and so that's... We got Jasper. Jasper has grown up with the five. He is seven and a half years old. I believe that dogs help bring a family closer together. Not that you need that. I know... I'm not trying to jump on... Oh, no, no, no. Jump this, on. Listen, keep making the case. I'm... If you are arguing with your spouse, or you like, having a tough day, but you go out for a walk with the dog. It really is a tension reliever. Because you laugh at them, they're funny, or they worry about them, whatever it might be. Um, also, they're a great buffer for politics. Like When I go to the dog park, I don't talk to politics. Anybody, I'm like, oh, sorry I'm at the dog park. Yeah. And, and you have to try to find commonalities with your fellow humans. And right now, people feel very polarized. Or they feel like, that. I don't know if you get this. I, this lady ran into me in the street the other day. Oh, Dana, I just want to say hi. I love your show. I'm a Democrat, but I love your show. Like, why do you have to say that? right? And what I found is that if you have a dog, it's like, oh, your dog's so cute. And then it becomes like, oh, your dog's cute. You're dog... And then you don't have to have the thing of, oh, well, I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat, I'm a Libertarian, I'm a so conservative. Like, whatever it is, there's no identity politics at the dog park, except if you have a Vishla, which is a superior breed.
1: <laughs> so in one second, I want to ask you the final question, which is going to be, whether Dana Perino believes that there is hope for a nicer America, we'll get to that question in just one second. But if you want to hear Dana's answer, you have to be a Daily Wire subscriber. To subscribe, head on over to DailyWire.com, click subscribe, watch the rest of our conversation there. Well, Dana Perino, thank you so much for stopping by. It's always great to see you, and look forward to having you on when we start doing repeats. Of oh, course. great! I would and, love and that. That'll be great. And if in I the make meantime, the cut. <laughs> in, in the meantime, we'll continue to allow the Ben Shapiro show to bring your marriage closer together. Okay, you thank, you. Know. thank that's, you. that's what we do here. Thank you so much. <laughs> great you. to see you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Matt Walsh Show, The Andrew Klavan Show, The Michael Knowles Show, and my show, The Ben Shapiro Show. Thanks for listening. The Ben Shapiro Show Sunday Special is directed by Mathis Glover and produced by Jonathan Hay. Executive producer Jeremy Boren. Associate producer Colton Haas. Our guests are booked by Caitlin Maynard. Post production is supervised by Alex Zingaro. Editing by Donovan Fowler. Audio is mixed by Mike Caromina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Olvera. Title graphics by Cynthia Angulo. The Ben Shapiro Show Sunday Special is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2019.